It's October 17th. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Wright Report, your daily news podcast. I've got three briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world. First, we talk about failure. The Israeli government is admitting this morning that they had a profound intelligence failure when they missed key information that could have possibly prevented those Hamas terror attacks. We'll discuss that plus what we can learn from it. Second, we talk about leadership this morning, and that is partly because Joe Biden is heading off to Israel tomorrow. But as he does, we should remember how his secretary of state was just treated in Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Some very important takeaways for us about American leadership in the Middle East and around the world. Third, we talk about the American way this morning, and here's why. Pro-Arab protests in the state of Michigan are testing the upper limits for what most reasonable people will accept when it comes to free speech. We will discuss that debate and whether or not free speech requires us to accept ugly speech. Later, a listener question today from an old friend of mine. He disagrees with how I tend to characterize the organization Black Lives Matter, and he wants to know why I'm doing it. So I've got that response coming up in a bit. But first, let's get to our top stories of the morning. Three important developments for us today, all connected to the war in Israel. And we start with a failure. Israel's domestic intelligence agency yesterday took responsibility for failing to prevent Hamas from carrying out their terror attacks on October 7th. Shin Bet director Ronan Barr said in a statement that, quote, despite a series of actions we carried out, unfortunately, we were unable to generate sufficient warning that would have allowed us to prevent the attack. And as the one who heads this organization, the responsibility for that failure is on me. There will be time for investigations, that's true, but for now, we fight, end quote. Well, while those Israeli investigations kick off in earnest over the next number of months, we already have some indications of what exactly happened, why those Israeli intel agencies and the military failed to stop the terror. And here's the latest on that. In the 24 hours before the attacks, the Israeli services actually picked up on what they saw to be unusual and growing numbers of men and activity in the Gaza Strip, but those early alarm bells were largely dismissed. And that is because Israeli intel officers believe that while there might have been some impending attacks, they would likely be small-scale in nature. And that kind of small-scale attack would not be terribly unusual, sadly, for Israel. Indeed, the Times of Israel has reported on this extensively. Well, that early and other mistakes then led to a series of what we might call cascading failures. First, we had destroyed cameras. That then led to severed communication lines, damaged security posts and towers. And eventually, all of this damage allowed Hamas to breach the walls and the fencing. And that series of failures is leading to a lot of outrage in Israel this morning with Mr. Netanyahu, the prime minister's approval ratings, collapsing. And indeed, some polling suggests that he should resign. So that is the latest on the failures coming to us out of Israel, the intel and military failures to prevent the Hamas terror attacks. Let me now pivot away from facts and data to offer you my analysis and assessment on failure. And to do so, I want to share something with you that I learned when I started with the CIA. It was in the fall of 2001. I was about 24 years old at the time. And the September 11th attacks were only a couple of months behind us. 
And as a very young man, I sat down at CIA headquarters with one of our counterterrorism teams, and our chief said to us uh, this, we have to be right 100 out of 100 times. Terrorists only have to be right once. So those are the odds, and that is the challenge. And I'll tell you, folks, I will not forget those words in that moment because the chief was right. One single mistake can lead to a catastrophe. And I suspect that my listeners who are police officers or firefighters or surgeons or radiologists, you all know exactly what I'm talking about. This is not just an intel or a military thing. Ours is a world of high pressure and high stakes. And we know what it means to fail. We know the consequences. So let's see what the failures were in Israel. And frankly, let's learn from them. Because Hamas and Hezbollah and other radical Islamist groups are not just interested in destroying Israel. They want to kill us here too. And so we need to learn from the Israelis and strengthen our resolve to find solutions to defeat those terrorists. More to come. The second piece of news for us out of the Middle East this morning is about leadership. U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken announced yesterday that Joe Biden is heading to Israel tomorrow. He will then travel onwards to the Arab countries of Jordan and Egypt, which we discussed in yesterday's very intense brief. Hopefully that will serve us well as Mr. Biden launches his Middle Eastern travels. But actually, Mr. Biden's trip is not really what we need to talk about this morning. It is actually secondary to Mr. Blinken's trips over the weekend. And it's all about leadership in the Middle East. Let me explain. Mr. Blinken was slated to meet with that fellow MBS on Saturday for a working dinner and then have a series of extended conversations late into the night about the war in Israel. But here's a problem. MBS did not show up, at least not on Saturday, not for dinner and not for a conversation. Instead, he left Mr. Biden's top diplomat waiting for hours. And then finally, Mr. Blinken gave up and he went to bed. As the Washington Post reports, Mr. Blinken then got up in the morning and waited a little bit longer with no explanation from the Saudis, apparently, until finally, at long last, Mr. NBS strolled in for a brief conversation. And when he did, he lectured Mr. Blinken on how Israel needs to stop its attacks on the Gaza Strip. Also, he said that Palestinians were losing their lives. And third, that the Israeli siege must be lifted. In other words, he just dressed down Mr. Blinken. Although you would not know that from Mr. Blinken's statements afterwards, he said, quote, I heard a lot of good ideas about some of the things that we need to do moving forward, end quote. Well, after that embarrassing episode, Mr. Biden's top diplomat then traveled off to Egypt, where he got a similar chilly response. But in this case, Egyptian uh, President al-Sisi made it pretty personal. He chided the U.S. Secretary of State for mentioning that he is Jewish. So here is what the Egyptian leader said, quote, you said that you are a Jewish person. Well, I am an Egyptian person who grew up next to Jews in Egypt. They have never been subjected to any form of oppression or targeting, and it has never happened in our region that Jews were targeted in our recent or old history, end quote. Okay. So there you have it, folks. My goodness, the facts and data on the Saudis, which on one hand left Mr. Blinken to wait overnight for an audience with Mr. MBS. And then on the other hand, we've got the Egyptians who are claiming that actually no Jewish people have ever been targeted or oppressed in the Middle East. And that, of course, is a doozy. Let me now pivot to my analysis and opinion of what to make of this. 
So let's talk about some history, shall we? Let's go all the way back to September 2nd of the year 1901. Then Vice President Teddy Roosevelt laid out his ideal foreign policy approach. It was in a speech in Minnesota. And he told the audience that it would come down to this, that America should speak softly, but carry a big stick. All right, for folks unaware, here's the idea. The United States should treat other nations kindly, with respect, with professionalism, but always have that unspoken power sitting right behind you, the stick, whether that be economic strength or covert action or the might of the U.S. military. And the clear implication here is to other nations, look, the United States will be nice, of course, but remember about that big stick because I'm going to beat you with it if you start acting up. Now, that is peace through strength, some might say. And it's not exactly something that is, uh, well, celebrated these days. A lot of folks in D.C. prefer what is called a rules-based international order that comes complete with uh, global criminal courts and international law and diplomatic efforts that take primacy over things like military solutions. But here's a problem. When nations don't fear you, in other words, when you speak softly and you carry no stick at all, well, then you get mistreated and disrespected, such as in Saudi Arabia with this Mr. MBS fella. He treated Biden's top diplomat like an irrelevant joke. In other words, folks, MBS is not and was not afraid of America or Mr. Blinken or Joe Biden. Ultimately, he's not afraid of whatever stick that we think we may or may not have. Instead, he just thinks we're pathetic. And that is why, indeed, Secretary Blinken sat for hours and then overnight waiting It's a message about America and our leadership. So how do we fix that? Well, if I were king for a day, here is what I would have advised Mr. Blinken do on his trip. He should have arrived in Saudi Arabia, waited for this MBS fella for an hour, maybe two. And if he got no response as to why there was a delay, then he should have left. And as he did, he should have put a note on his pillow saying, dearest MBS, It looks like we are both very busy men. Now, if you'd like to speak, perhaps to discuss some new problems facing your country, feel free to come to D.C. I'm sure we can work something out. And by new problems, I mean that we could have advised the president to then authorize, well, some fun things that might cause perhaps an important building in Saudi Arabia to have some problems, or maybe some ships that are carrying Saudi oil to get stuck at sea. Or maybe a very lovely Saudi official just disappears on a safari. And then you send MBS another note and say, oh dear, I heard about your troubles. That is a real shame. Give me a call. I think I can help. We can work it out. The point, ladies and gentlemen, is you speak softly. And then if they don't listen, you swing that big stick right over, in this case, MBS's kneecaps. And you put that dude in a wheelchair for six months. I don't know. You make him feel pain. And then you let him think about his pain and the mistake of messing around with you. And then you go back to speaking softly. You offer to reset the relationship. And that is how the world of international affairs works, at least based on my old career. Although, apparently, that is not properly understood at the current White House. That said... Let's see how Mr. Biden does over these next few days. Let's see if he and America start getting treated with some respect or if instead we keep being treated like a bunch of idiots. With that, let's take our first break of the morning. 
When we come back, we are going to talk about the third piece of news connected to the war in Israel this morning. And it is a piece of news coming to us from the state of Michigan. We'll be right back. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue with our briefs this morning with a pivot towards our third and final piece of news connected to the war in Israel. Yesterday on Fox News, they ran this headline on their website, quote, anti-terror expert issues warning on chant that is used by pro-Palestinian activists, end quote. Okay, well, here's the chant, quote, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, end quote. So for folks unaware, that is a pro-Arab chant that has been used for decades to advance the Palestinian cause. In fact, it was used up until the early 1990s by the Palestinian group PLO. It was all about calling for the eradication of the Israeli state and the Jewish people in the Middle East. Well, as you would imagine, then this phrase, this chant is incredibly controversial to say it or use it. Indeed, in countries like Austria, just using that phrase, speaking it out loud or putting it on paper, That is justification to shut down a protest or even arrest people. They consider it an incitement of violence. But that is not true here, not in the United States. Leftist and Democrat groups from the socialist to BLM use that phrase often and with great zeal. In fact, we have heard it a lot in one city recently. That is in Dearborn, Michigan. For folks unaware, Dearborn has changed dramatically over the years. In fact, a majority of their citizens are now Arab Americans, with people originally from Lebanon, Yemen, Iraq, and the Palestinian territories now making up a majority of that city. Well, given that, you would, as you would imagine, over the past 10 days, Dearborn has seen a lot of protests by these ethnic Arabs. They are demanding that the United States stick up for the Palestinians. And yes, they are saying... From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. I should say, though, that it is not just the citizens, the average folk in Dearborn saying this. It is also Dearborn's congresswoman, a gal named Rashida Tlaib. She is a socialist member of the Democrat Party and a Palestinian American. So she has long used this phrase, although in the past couple of years, she has tried to avoid doing so. And that is because the press has hounded her for using it. Indeed, she was forced to take it down uh, based on a couple of tweets she sent a few years ago. But here's something interesting related to this chant and indeed this part of this country. One of Ms. Talib's uh, constituents in Dearborn said something that I think is very important about not just this chant, but really the broader pro-Palestinian protests in Dearborn and really about free speech. So let's talk about this constituent. His name is Mr. Sadiq Musleh. He is a 47-year-old auto worker of Yemeni descent. The Wall Street Journal recently interviewed him, and he said this about his Dearborn community, quote, everybody is doing their jobs and living their lives, but even at protests, when they're mad, they say what they're going to say, and then they go home, end quote. In other words, he's saying that he and his city's predominantly ethnically Arab residents, sure, they advocate for their views, but in a peaceful way. So what he's saying is, let us get loud and as angry as we want. 
so long as we do so in peace. And that is important to think about and wrestle with. So let's do that. Let's talk about it. Pivoting now from facts and data to my analysis and opinion. And let's start with this. One week ago, CNN's Jake Tapper was commenting to a guest about the terror attacks into Israel, and he said this, quote, These last few days have been a real eye-opening period for a lot of people, a lot of Democrats, a lot of progressives, in terms of the anti-Semitism on the left, end quote. And naturally, of course, he's right. Indeed, I have laid this out in granular detail over the past week or so. We've talked about the bigoted views of American leftists in colleges to bigoted Democrat politicians and also organizations, yes, like Black Lives Matter and, of course, the Democrat Socialists of America. But here's the thing. The only way that we have come to know about all of that bigotry and all of that anti-Semitism is because it has been so obvious, so clear, so loud It has been on TV, on social media, and in protests from New York City to, yes, Dearborn, Michigan. In other words, leftist media outlets have been faced with such a barrage of bigoted statements and actions from their side that they could no longer hide their bigoted followers and listeners and viewers. They had to look in the mirror. And as Jake Tapper said, it was pretty ugly. Leftists were indeed justifying or celebrating things like murder and rape and torture. And that takes us to the point that Mr. Sadiq Musleh made. How much free speech should America allow? Even if the protesters in places like Dearborn are being peaceful, they're still advocating for the death of, say, the Israeli state or, God forbid, Jewish people. Yes, how much free speech should we allow if indeed that free speech involves some pretty ugly things? Well, as we wrestle with how to answer that, we should remember a few things. First, this tension, it's not new. In our recent history, in fact, we have a great example of it. Back in 1978, the ACLU defended neo-Nazis and socialists in court as those folks wanted to march through some place called Skokie, Illinois. And that was a pretty terrible thing to do because that city is where a lot of Holocaust survivors lived at the time. Well, as the lawsuit went forward as as to whether or not these protests could happen, the case reached the U.S. Supreme Court. And through a subsequent series of rulings, it was decided that, in effect, ugly speech is still protected speech. By the way, if you'd like to read more into this case, it's a pretty infamous one. My lawyers know it well. It's called the National Socialist Party of America versus the Village of Skokie. My point is this, folks. Free speech does require ugly speech, even hateful speech. And yet, my goodness, it is so hard to watch or listen to that stuff or even know it exists, right? The easy and frankly understandable reflex is to to ban it or say that it it shouldn't be listened to or, or ever seen. And depending on the circumstances, there is a compelling legal argument to restrict some of those kinds of speeches. For instance, there's another very infamous Supreme Court case. It's called Brandenburg versus Ohio. It gets into what happens if speech ever crosses a line into violence. In other words, when it incites imminent violence or lawlessness. But that aside, folks, what I think is happening in this country right now, it's different. And ironically, I think it's something that's actually good. And here's what I mean. Through the ugliness of the left right now, when Jake Tapper on CNN is forced to admit to his fellow leftists that it is they who are the bad guys that it is they who are the bigots and the racists and the anti-Semites, well, then maybe 
we can start to have a more honest, nuanced conversation about who we are in this country. In other words, my friends, as painful as this moment is for so many of us in America who are just disgusted by the images and the sounds of our fellow Americans who are celebrating the murder, rape, and torture of Jewish people by Hamas, it is so vital that we allow those ugly and despicable things to be said and to be heard. Because only then can we rip out that evil by the root and dump it into the rubbish pile. Only then can we realize which of our politicians and political parties are actually the most detestable of all of humanity, a group that need to be tossed into the dustbin of history. So let us watch, let us hear this vile speech. But let us remember, because we have an election in one year's time, and that is when we can make our voices heard. That is when we can make our speech the loudest and most righteous in our land. With that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude this morning's episode of The Right Report. But I've got one more thing before I let you go. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Right Report with one more thing before I let you go. It is a listener question today sent to us from an old friend. So background here, as you all know, I worked for the CIA for many years, but I also worked for and with the U.S. military on some projects. And one of my old military buddies uh, is a fellow that while we both love our country, well, then as now, we do not see eye to eye on politics. And that's fine. In fact, it's good. Good friendships and good colleagues can come in all forms. So I'm going to call this fellow, old colleague of mine, let's call him Jack for today. So Jack wrote to me and he said, if I can paraphrase, as a black American, I'm curious, Brian, why you take aim at Black Lives Matter as being anti-Semitic. And yet you don't tend to criticize other anti-Semitic organizations who are, say, Islamic or white supremacist. So what gives? Jack then went on to share a variety of news from various Islamic or white supremacist people or groups doing terrible things acts of violence, intimidation, etc., against Jewish people. And his point was that, why don't I talk about that and condemn it? Now, what Jack didn't say, and I'm just going to say it for him because I suspect that he's going to agree with me. He will say, Brian, why do you tend to also take aim at BLM in general? What's your problem with that group? So here is what I share with Jack, and I'm going to share this with you all as well. First, I told him that I will always love him like a brother, so long as he does the same with me. And that is because there is no amount of politics that will ever come between us or should. And the reason for that, from my optic, is pretty darn simple. There is no political party or politician that is going to be there for us come hell or high water, right? Neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump is going to hold my hair if I am puking into the toilet after chemo treatments, right? But he, my friend, will do that for me and I will do that for him. So friendships matter more than politics, and, and that's just that. Second, I told Jack, anybody who treats a Jewish person like they are some subhuman animal, right? they need to be named and shamed. And if they are violent, they got to be jailed. And that is true whether that organization or that person is affiliated with BLM or the Klan or whatever. I don't care. Right. This just absolute resolute refusal to treat people poorly goes back to the last brief that I just gave. But more importantly, 
it goes back to how I was raised and the culture of the CIA when I joined it. So to that point, we are all God's children. That is how I was raised. And at the CIA, we were told to do our mission for the country irrespective of the people working around us. Indeed, we would work with people who were different, who were black or white or gay or straight or Christian, Muslim or Jew. So ultimately, it comes down to this. As I told Jack, my belief is that you get to enjoy your constitutional rights and I get to enjoy mine and I'm going to leave you alone and you leave me alone. That's kind of how it ought to work, in my view. Third, I shared with Jack that I distinguish between Black Lives Matter, the organization, and Black Lives Matter, the plea, the scream, the the demand that black lives should matter when sometimes it, it doesn't feel like those lives do. So here's what I mean. Let's start with BLM, the organization. All right, we know for certain that they are a Marxist group. Their founders are trained Marxists. They brag about that. So this issue of them being Marxist is not contested. Second, we also know that BLM, the organization, is a grift. By that, let me give you just one example. They have spent over $10 million on mansions. Yes, for those socialist leaders, actually. Now, it is true that some people have joined this BLM organization and what they believe to be a good thing regarding racial work. And that includes people and companies alike, by the way. The top six companies that have contributed to BLM, those include uh, the organizations or the companies PNC, Bank of America, PayPal, Pepsi, and Wells Fargo. Those six companies have given BLM 70% of their overall corporate donations. And here's the deal, Jack. I am not interested in supporting a Marxist communist grift, even if it does have a corporate series of backers. And that is because fundamentally what history has shown us is that Marxism and its various forms of government, whether that be socialism or communism, it's deadly, right? It, those forms of government have led to the deaths of over 100 million people, depending on how you calculate the number. But the point is, it's a whole bunch. So no thank you to Marxism or its enterprises like BLM. But that then takes us to the other Black Lives Matter, the plea the scream, the demand to be heard. And when it comes to that, I told Jack, as I would tell anybody, that I will be your brother in arms. We've got to talk about our fellow Americans, including and especially black Americans who are struggling and they want their voices and experiences to be heard. And that's important to me for all of us. And the way that I choose to do that has been starting with listening, listening to journeys and experiences to to learn, understand, sympathize, to whatever extent to empathize. And my goal as I listen is to ask myself two questions. First, how do we fix this if it can be fixed? And second, what is my role in fixing that? And as I ask myself those questions, I know from the start that there is no one final answer or one series of of perfect solutions, right? There is no finish line on progress, racial or otherwise. And we know that from the very first words of the preamble of the Constitution. And let us remind ourselves of those first few words. Let's repeat them now. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union. But let's stop. Did you hear that? In order to form a more perfect union. Let us think about that. In order to form a more perfect union, 
it means that there is no finish line. We will never be perfect. We will only be more perfect today than we were yesterday if we work at it. So that's the goal, Jack, to keep fighting to be more perfect. One life, whether that be black or white, at a time. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude your morning brief. As always, I will see you tomorrow, God willing. Until then, I leave you with the creed of every good spy and every wise American. They're the words from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day.